Welcome to Global Connections with Robert Siegel, Navigating the New Normal, presented by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Our monthly leaders forum addresses vital issues facing society and the economy, real estate and medicine, technology and science. My name is Dr. Joshua Plout. I'm the executive director of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, AFRMC, a 501c3, National American Charitable Organization based in New York City. We at AFRMC represent Israel's premier hospital, Rabin Medical Center in Petah Tikva in Greater Tel Aviv, the leading institution named in honor of Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. The hospital is a model of coexistence as it serves 1 million patients annually from all ethnic and religious backgrounds with the same compassionate care. Please support our mission in this free public affairs program with a donation of any amount. Visit us, American Friends of Rabin Medical Center online and donate at afrmc.org. Join us on social media, on Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, YouTube, and our Facebook page and discussion group. We depend on our audience's support to help the hospital in Israel. So thank you if you can contribute any amount. Our host and moderator for Global Connections is Robert Siegel, former host of All Things Considered on National Public Radio for 31 years. Over the course of an hour each month, Global Connection features guests who Robert Siegel interviews as they explore important issues in our world. Today's Global Connections topic is the economy in the Ukrainian war. Thank you to our very special guest, Professor Jason Furman, at the Kennedy School at Harvard University, the former chair of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Abby Joseph Cole, professor at Columbia University Business School and former senior investment strategist for Goldman Sachs. And John Cassidy, author and columnist for The New Yorker magazine. And now, Global Connections with Robert Siegel. Thank you, Josh. Several weeks ago, when we decided to focus this month on the state of the economy, it seemed a timely topic. Uh, the administration had acknowledged the gravity of inflation. Uh, the president was about to make his first official State of the Union address. Uh, his, uh, a big chunk of his domestic agenda was being blocked by a couple of reluctant senators of his own party. Could have made for a good hour. Uh, then came the event that has reshaped public discourse around the world. Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainians are battling the Russians on their own with some material support from both NATO members and some other countries. Uh, but those NATO members in other countries, mostly led by us, uh, have chosen to respond to Russian aggression in Ukraine on the economic front uh, with very uh, tough sanctions, uh, sanctions that uh, threaten the Russian Russians with everything from uh, making their assets and overseas markets inaccessible uh, to uh, kicking them out of sports competitions, uh, barring their artists from the world's great uh, opera halls and uh, symphony halls. How did this all come about? Uh, and what effect might these sanctions have on our economy and for that matter on the economies of our friends and allies uh, in Europe? Uh, and uh, if we dare to ask, were it not for Russia and COVID, uh, how's our economy doing? These are big questions, and we have an excellent panel of uh, three guests to address them. Uh, after we hear from each, we'll have a half an hour of, of discussion and questions. Uh, you can submit a question by using the Q&A button at the bottom of the screen. Our first panelist is John Cassidy, uh, who writes about politics and economics for The New Yorker, where he's been a staff writer since 1995. Uh, he's the author of two books, How Markets Fail, The Logic of Economic Calamities, and Dot Dot Con, How America Lost Its Mind and Money in the Internet Era. Uh, John Cassidy, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much for inviting me on. 
Uh, and I want you as the, as the journalist on our panel to first help take us through what's happened on the economic front uh, of the, uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, we went from thinking that the cost of a Russian invasion would be a, uh, the sort of uh, sanctions that uh, wouldn't do too much damage to the Russians because they are uh, the, the gas station in Europe's backyard. And instead, what we've seen is a very tough uh, sanctions regime. What happened? Well, I think basically what happened is Putin has miscalculated. As you say, he thought that um, Russia was a sanction-proof economy for two reasons. One, as you say, the Europeans are extremely dependent on Russian oil and even more so on natural gas, which makes up to 50, nearly 50% of the EU's natural gas imports. Countries like Germany and Italy, even in the run-up to the war, were expressing great skepticism about the possibility of energy sanctions. And I think Putin thought he could survive anything but that. Turns out he was actually mistaken about that too, because he also underestimated the force of the financial sanctions, which the West has introduced. So I think we've basically seen a bunch of uh, miscalculations on his part and sort of underestimation of how invading, the invasion itself would have a transformative political effect, which in turn has transformed the sort of financial and economic repercussions. I'm, I'm curious if, if Putin is surprised by how Europe responded to what happened. Are you surprised by how Europe responded to what I happened? I must say I am. I mean, I, I, I'm as guilty as anybody else. I wrote a piece a couple of weeks before the invasion saying, look, Putin, the Russians, that whatever Putin decides, economics probably won't be the decisive factor in his mind, simply because of the um, factors I laid out. And um, I think if you'd have interviewed virtually anybody in Europe, including the European leaders who have now done a 180 on this, they would have given you the same answer. Yeah. In fact, you know, the, the uh, former head of the European Central Bank, Mario Draghi, who's now the uh, president of <coughs> Prime Minister of Italy, he himself warned against broad sanctions just a week or so before the war started. On the eve of the Russian invasion, uh, much of the criticism uh, over the sanctions, uh, much of the criticism that I heard focused on the system called SWIFT, uh, which I confess I had never heard of until, un until this debate. Uh, we weren't blocking Russian access, Russian banks access to SWIFT, uh, the argument went, uh, so the sanctions weren't uh, tough enough. Uh, now, you would say that what we actually did, people were missing the point uh, that the sanctions that were imposed were bigger than blocking Russian access to SWIFT. I mean, SWIFT in itself was sort of seen by some people as a nuclear option, but I always thought that was a bit of a um, exaggeration. SWIFT, people say that SWIFT is a, a financial transfer mechanism. It's actually not. It's a financial messaging service which banks use be, to confirm and uh, alert each other to financial transfers. There are actually potential ways around it. You can send old-fashioned telexes, etc. It's very awkward. But I don't think the SWIFT sanction by itself would have decimated the, US, uh, the USSR. USSR. But, but the novel and very tough step here was sanctioning the central right, bank. Exactly. Nobody, I don't think, on the Russian or even on the European side initially thought of the sanctions against the central bank, which really hit the Russian financial system, you know, like, like a, what they, they call financial warfare like a, a you know, they just created a huge crater in their financial system. Because if you remember, the Russians had spent a long time building up their financial reserves, their foreign exchange reserves. They have over $600 billion in foreign reserve assets. Virtually everybody thought that would be enough to protect the ruble. If people started selling the ruble, they could intervene like all central banks do and buy it. But they made the mistake of leave, leaving, when nobody knows for sure, but roughly two thirds of these financial reserves foreign reserves in foreign countries, the US, the UK, France, China, we're not sure exactly where they are. But basically, by sanctioning the central bank, the um, allies have been able to freeze that money. And that's what's caused real consternation in Moscow. As, as the allies were doing that, Americans were already feeling the pain of rising inflation. Uh, what impact could uh, cutting off Russians, uh, Russian oil or gas, or for that matter, grain exports, uh, what impact might it have on the cost of living here? Um, well, I'll leave the uh, details of that to Jason. I'm, I'm sure there's <laughs> okay. simulations of it, but obviously the first round repercussions are, are pretty obvious. The oil price has already uh, you know, gone from um, about $70, $75 to $130 at one point. It's come back again on the day, fallen bit today as we're speaking, but still 30 or 40% up above what it was. Some people are talking about it going even higher. That 
well, you already see in California, which is actually quite dependent on Russian oil for some technical reasons, mm. the, uh, the price of gasoline there is already over $5 and $6 in some stations. We could see $5 oil across the country in the coming weeks. That's the first round. That's the first round of impact on the cost of living. And then, of course, energy is a component and an um, input to all sorts of other productive processes. And as time goes on, it will also impact the cost of living through other industries. We do have other uh, economic issues in the country apart from, from inflation and apart from uh, the war in Ukraine. Uh, one is the phenomenon that's been called the great resignation. Uh, are, are Americans, in fact, leaving the workforce or are they quitting bad jobs to get better jobs? Well, I mean, I think it's a bit of both. We saw over the pandemic there was a lot more quitting. We've got some figures this week as well confirmed. Quitting is still at record highs in, uh, in the U.S., Economy. I think the latest figure, Jason, I'm sure will be able to confirm this, about 2.93% of the labor force people are quitting every month. That's a remarkable figure. Two things seem to have happened over the course of the pandemic. One, first round of resignations, people just got very nervous. A lot of older members of the labor force just said, OK, I've had enough. I don't fancy risking it. I'll take, go back into retirement or take early retirement. But then what we've seen in this more recently, especially in the uh, lower wage parts of the labor market, uh, a complete uh, sort of turnaround for decades. People in those jobs have had zero bargaining power and have basically seen no wage growth at all and big wage cuts in real terms. That's completely flipped around and they've got actually, there are far more jobs than there are people willing to do those jobs in those industries now. And uh, wages have increased at a rate which we haven't seen in decades. Now, some of that wage growth has been uh, rubbed out by the big jump in inflation, but in Things like hotels and restaurants, uh, wages have been rising at sort of 15% or so over last year. So that's still twice the rate of inflation. So yes, in our, period, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. So that that is, the, I think when people talk about the great resignation, that's what they're referring to mainly, rather than people dropping out of the labor force because of COVID. But it, it, they're both part of the same phenomenon, really. Uh, as, our, as our audience may have guessed, you're originally from the north of England. Uh, so you, you could tell folks in Ohio and West Virginia uh, something about what it feels like for jobs to disappear and go overseas. Uh, when you heard President Biden in the State of the Union promising to, to buy American, uh, were you convinced that that's, that's practical and beneficial? Or are we hooked on foreign labor and open markets and things built in the countries where uh, people work for cheap? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm old enough. I mean, I've been in... I don't, probably can't tell from my accent, but I've been in the US a long time. I first arrived in 1984 and I covered the 88 campaign going back that, that long. And if you remember, Dick Gephardt ran on a Buy in America ticket then. So, you know, that, that's what, longer ago than I, I care to think, 30 odd years ago. So, you know, this Buy American message has been around for a long time. It went away in the sort of late 90s, early O's when we all bought into globalization and sort of China as a source of cheap imports. But it, it now, of course, it's back because, the, you know, we've seen the downside of globalization over the last two decades. John Cassidy, thanks. I think you can turn another light on in your room, by the way, while, while we're talking with yeah, uh, Joseph Cohen. <laughs> but thanks and stick around uh, for another quarter hour, 20 minutes uh, for the question and answer session. Uh, and we will now turn to our second panelist, Abby Joseph Cohen, uh, who spent a career as an economist and financial analyst. Uh, she is now Professor of Business at Columbia University's School of Business. Uh, she started out at the Federal Reserve in Washington as a staffer and went from there uh, into the private sector. Uh, Abby Joseph Cohen is best known for her time at Goldman Sachs, uh, where she went to work in the 1990s and rose to become the firm's senior investment strategist. I'm just going to mention that among her many non-financial, non-primary uh, uh, business activities, Abby has been chair of the board of Jewish Theological Seminary. Welcome back. Good to see you. Good to uh, see you, Robert. Uh, we've uh, heard about the sanctions that have been imposed on Russia. They come at a time when the U.S. is experiencing a burst of inflation and energy costs or costs at the pump seem to be leading the way. Uh, if, in fact, uh, for everything that's delivered by truck in the U.S., every gallon of gasoline or diesel fuel costs more, uh, will more sanctions compound an already serious problem? Well, Robert, let's make the following observation. We have seen this notable rise at the pump before the crude that costs more has even arrived here. Mm -hmm. 
right? So what we basically see um, is that the cost of the pump has risen, shall we say, in an opportunistic manner. Um, and I, for one, find that somewhat disturbing. Are you saying price gouging? Is that, is that the phrase that-, that uh, one, could, one could use that expression, yes. Mm. Um, because there don't seem to be um, any, any constraints at this point uh, with regard to supply uh, in the United States. So, so yes, I, I think that those prices have risen, let's just call it prematurely, number one. Number two, I am concerned about let's call it the public relations and expectations aspect of what's going on. So for example, on the evening news uh, and the morning news uh, every day, the economic uh, report is almost always, this is what's happening at the gas pump. Um, there's not really an analysis of what's happening in other markets, uh, how large a component this is of the family budget. And I recognize that this can be can be significant for some families. But for the time being, I think there's something of a, shall we call it a news media overreaction uh, to what has happened thus far. Uh, we are not heavily dependent on Russian uh, gasoline or petroleum or natural gas, but uh, say Germany and Italy and other countries in Europe are. Uh, are the sanctions likely to prove uh, really difficult for our European friends and allies? Yeah, great point, because the United States in many ways has an economy that is much more protected than um, are the economies in Europe. Part of it has to do with the fact that Russia simply is not a significant trade partner with the United States. You know, lots of people are talking about the 3% of, uh, of our energy that we import from Russia. Um, but let's keep in mind that even before the sanctions, there were sanctions that occurred anyway, um, because the insurance companies immediately upon the uh, invasion uh, by the Russians of Ukraine, the insurance companies basically said they're not providing coverage for any of the tankers that weren't already uh, filled and on their way back. Uh, so whether those sanctions have been imposed or not, uh, there was a de facto uh, sanction created. But in Europe, there is much more of an impact, first of all, because they are more dependent upon energy supplies from Russia than are we. And number two, several economies, including Germany, do trade much more with Russia than does the United States. And let's keep in mind that the Russian economy overall is not that big an economy. It's roughly $1.7 trillion in dollar terms. Uh, and to contrast that to the United States, which is roughly $21 trillion in size. Although, I mean, it's, as, as, as an old joke goes, you can teach it round or teach it flat. The, the, the 12th biggest economy in the world, I guess, is, is smaller than Italy's, but it's pretty big. You know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a player in the world economy, you know? It's a player and it's an undiversified player, which is what creates some of the problem. So they um, sort of, you know, play over their uh, welterweight status um, with regard to energy and also with regard to wheat. And that is something that should raise some concern in combination with the fact that Ukraine is often referred to as the breadbasket of Europe. So if in fact there are uh, shortfalls with regard to exports of wheat, uh, not just from Russia, but also from Ukraine, that could be a problem. And it helps explain the Chinese involvement here as well, because the Chinese are important customers of both those two countries uh, for those grains. Keep in mind that China is a large country, um, but it underperforms with regard to agriculture in large part because it doesn't have arable water. Uh, I'd like now to turn to uh, the President's State of the Union address and the part where he talked about buying American. Mm -hmm. uh, how, how realistic is that? How desirable uh, is it after, uh, as, as we heard from John Cassidy, some years of celebrating globalization uh, to attempt to reindustrialize the United States? Yeah, you know, there are the statements that are made for political purposes, but there's also what we're seeing happening on the ground. And I do think that we have seen the shift away from, let's call it offshoring, to a new expression. There's reshoring, where some forms of production are coming back to the United States, but perhaps even more powerful than that will be so-called 
nearshoring. You know, one of the things that the pandemic did was open our eyes with regard to the fragility of the global supply chain. Uh, if you're relying on providers and uh, producers uh, a very long distance away, maybe that's not so clever, uh, particularly for items that you really need, including things that are important uh, for defense, uh, important for public health and, and so on. And so over the last two years, we have seen that many companies have moved without any sort of legislation towards nearshoring. They're trying to bring production back either into the United States or into neighbors such as Canada and Mexico. And the other thing that's happening as well is a diversification of where production is occurring. And so, for example, during the so-called period of great globalization, the reality is that not every country participated. Um, China was a great beneficiary, but many neighbors of China were not. And what we've seen over the last handful of years has been that some of the production in Asia has moved out of China, but into China's neighbors and into some countries that tend to be a little bit friendlier uh, towards the West. I, I, I see your point about nearshoring uh, being beneficial to a great many companies, but at the same time, it, it, it was no solace to workers in the upper Midwest that the factory they worked in moved only to Mexico and that it's just across the border. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it, 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 wasn't in, it wasn't in Michigan anymore was the, was, was, was the key point. It wasn't even in the U.S. Sure. Uh, is near point, mm -hmm. yeah, po point well taken, Robert. And we need to discuss a couple of other reasons why jobs were lost. Uh, one reason has to do with technology itself and the impact on worker productivity. The reality is that the United States is producing more new manufactured goods now than ever before, but we're doing it with fewer workers, number one. And number two, very importantly, we've not done what we need to as a nation to find new jobs, new vocations, for those workers. One of the things that has happened during the course of economic history is that when there have been the structural changes, these have been accompanied when successful with changes with regard to retraining workers and building up new industries. And we've not done that. So for example, in the past, when there was the shift from the heavy metal bending industries of the 1950s and 60s into more sophisticated advanced manufacturing, it was the employers themselves that did a great deal of the retraining. And there was also retraining and training for new positions provided by community colleges. This time around, very little of that. The absence of that social contract between employers and employees has meant that companies are doing what they used to with regard to retraining existing workers, number one. Number two, the idea that workers expect to continue to work for the same employer yeah. throughout their careers, that contract has broken. And number three, we have not been providing as a nation the same level of funding that we had been previously for things like community colleges and other forms of technical training. The good news has been during the pandemic is that many state and local governments that did receive financial assistance from the federal government, they have used those funds to actually reboot many of their community college programs. Abby Joseph Cohen, thank you, and stick with us uh, for the Q&A session in about 10 minutes. Uh, our third panelist today is Professor Jason Furman, uh, who teaches the practice of economic policy at Harvard's Kennedy School and at the university's Department of Economics. Uh, his involvement in making economic policy spends about 20 years by my count. Uh, as a graduate student, he was hired for a one-year stint as a staff economist uh, for Bill Clinton's White House Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, he was economic policy director for the Democratic presidential campaigns of John Kerry and Barack Obama. And during the Obama administration, he rose to be chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors, uh, Jason Furman. Welcome and thank you for taking part today. Great uh, to be here. When it comes to giving a president uh, economic policy advice, you've been there. Uh, so let's say Joe Biden were to ask you right now, uh, hey, you know, we have inflation at a level that Americans uh, only remember if they're my, you know, frankly, if they're a little bit younger than Joe Biden. Uh, it's, it's a problem. Americans are unaccustomed to it. Our Ukraine policy may, may uh, exacerbate that problem. What do I do? What's, what's the right policy move now? What do you say? 
The first thing I'd say is there are some things that are even more important than inflation. And right now what's happening in Ukraine is just much more profoundly important. I worked on Russia's sanctions in 2014 and 2015. And the main message in all of my analysis for President Obama was everything we're doing is incredibly asymmetric. Yes, it has some cost to the United States. It has a much greater cost to um, Russia. That is true of all the sanctions under discussion now. And so all of those should be evaluated not by their impact on US inflation or US GDP, but their impact on Russia's ability to wage war um, and the future of Ukraine. So that would be the first thing I'd say. Um, the second thing I'd say on inflation is not that great a message for him to have in the public, which is that he should do everything he can, open up ports, get more people into trucking, you know, look into some of the concentration monopoly issues in the economy, but that that's just not gonna add up to a whole lot. Mm. Um, that the main two solutions here are time and the Federal Reserve. And, and uh, the Federal Reserve has, has its own issues, but, but how, how much time? Uh, I mean, how, how long, when, initially when inflation was dismissed as a transitory problem uh, by the administration, uh, uh, that, that seemed to suggest that within a matter of months, a season, we'd be back to, uh, uh, to normal. Is that still the case or should we, should we uh, buckle in for a couple of years? If you take the very best economic models we have of inflation, they would tell you it's gonna go away quite quickly because long-term inflation expectations haven't moved very much. You look at forecasts of inflation over the next 10 years by financial markets or economic forecasters, they haven't changed very much. The problem with the very best economic models is that they just weren't that good two years ago mm -hmm. and they failed terribly last year. Yeah. And so that makes me not want to use the so-called Phillips curve that um, some people talk about, and instead look at indicators like um, what do businesses say about price increases? They say they're gonna raise them quite a lot. What's the momentum in nominal wage setting? Um, it's quite high. Will wages pass through to prices and prices to wages? Well, we haven't seen that in the last 25 years, but we also haven't seen inflation like this, and it sort of stands to reason we would. So I am deeply uncertain, but I'm pretty worried that we're gonna to continue to have a decently high level of inflation for the next couple of years. When, when you've, uh, as you say, you worked on Russia's sanctions uh, during the Obama administration, when you look at the current sanctions against Russia, uh, is the point actually to deprive the Russians of the economic wherewithal to wage war, or is it to make life in Russia so uncomfortable uh, that even in a system uh, that is uh, uh, certainly undemocratic, uh, but in some respect, responsive to, to opinion, that they have to back off this uh, uh, this policy because uh, the, the the people of the uh, of, of Russia will feel penalized by it and cut off from the world. Which is it? What what's it supposed to do? I think different policymakers have different views on those two questions. So part of it is just punishment. Part of it is trying to change behavior. Part of it is depriving the war machine because there's no scenario other than complete Russian capitulation in which this doesn't last for a while. They'll occupy part of the country, there'll be a resistance, um, et cetera. So the ability of them to fly planes and, and roll tanks six months from now is unfortunately probably gonna matter. I think people probably are looking at other countries too, most notably China um, and Taiwan um, and the conflict there and trying to have some deterrence. You mean that there must be an example showing that when big countries try to gobble up small neighbors whom they claim to be historically indistinct? Yeah, and, yeah uh, I think that has to be um, in the back of at least some policymakers' heads. As, as for the question of, of Europe and the impact of, uh, of uh, not, not uh, well, the impact of these sanctions, uh, are Russian natural gas and petroleum inevitably uh, part of Europe's uh, near-term future? Or can you imagine substitutions uh, that could be affordable uh, and that exist uh, within the next few years that would permit Europeans to power and to uh, warm their, their countries without depending on Russia? The next few years, absolutely, yes. Um, Europe can free itself of its dependence on Russian fossil fuels. 
the much tougher question is can Europe do it by um, next winter? Um, mm -hmm. The good news is natural gas is incredibly seasonal and you need a lot of it coming in ahead of the winter. That gives you about eight months to figure out alternatives. There have been a couple different groups which have tried to find out, you know, figure out what Europe could do right now to replace the natural gas coming in. Where could it cut back? Where could it get something else? Where could it switch to a different energy source? If you are not wildly optimistic, but a bit on the optimistic side, mm -hmm. figure out um, how that gets done. It gets done with a certain amount of pain, a lot more pain than we're going to experience in the United States. Um, I think it is, though, at the edge of doable even by um, next winter, and, and they very, very well may have to. Uh, very recently, and I should add, uh, for those who are watching this uh, discussion uh, uh, several days from now, that uh, we're speaking on March the 9th, uh, but the recently uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, implied something less than full-throated support for Russia's invasion of, of, of Ukraine. It wasn't criticism, but it wasn't, uh, it, it, it wasn't fully on board. Uh, if for whatever reason China does decide that it doesn't want to see a humiliating Russian defeat, uh, and if it decides it's going to try to help Russia tough out these sanctions, can they do that? Or do they have the economic power to do so? I don't think so. I, I think China can help mitigate some of the economic consequences for Russia, but it has only a limited ability. It's a much larger economy than Russia, but it's still way smaller than what Russia's cut itself off from. Mm -hmm. uh, second, uh, China's gonna wanna take advantage of the situation. So mm -hmm. they're not gonna use this to pay extra for oil to help Russia out. They're gonna use this to extract oil at a discount from Russia. And so you know, a bunch of the benefit of whatever flows in that relationship will go to China, not Russia. Um, and the last thing to understand is China's economy is really being hurt by this. Um, they are you know, big importers of oil. Um, the oil price here is a political problem in the United States, much more than it's an economic problem. It's a genuine economic problem in China right now. They don't like uh, this type of global economic instability. It's not good for them. And, and they're wheat importers from Ukraine, I gather. Yes, and wheat pretty, too. Pretty yeah. big customers. Um, well, Jason Furman, thank you very much. And I'd like to bring back Abby Joseph Cohen and John Cassidy uh, for all three of you uh, now to uh, take part in the question and answer session. I, I'd like to begin by just putting a, a question to, to, to all of you and we can start with, uh, well, we can go in reverse order with Jason to Abby and then, and then uh, John Cassidy. If it's possible to say, uh, apart, from, apart from COVID and apart from Russia, uh, how are we doing? Uh, if I can lure you into that theoretical world, uh, how is the economy doing right now, but for those two crises? I see it as a glass two thirds full, um, an extraordinary recovery of GDP, a pretty good recovery of employment, but still a couple million people that haven't re-entered the labor force. But inflation is incredibly high. And so workers have been losing ground for more than a year now and potentially are gonna to continue to lose ground for some time. That's a you know, tricky-ish thing um, to navigate. Again, it's much better than the problem of high unemployment and low mm -hmm. inflation, but high inflation isn't just an issue that was made up by the media when families have seen their income fall you know, almost every month for a year, uh, their wages fall almost every month for a year. Um, there's a reason that they're not happy. Abby Joseph Cohen, what, uh, how, how full is the glass is the, the way you see it? Um, I concur with much of what Jason has said. Um, sort of reminds me of that terrible joke about other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, how is the play? Um, this has been a very difficult time um, over the last several years, particularly for middle income and low middle income families in the United States. And one of the things that I had been um, pleased to see was that wages were beginning to rise uh, pre-pandemic. Um, you know, we've gone through you know, 20, almost 30 years in which median household incomes adjusted for inflation have declined in the United States, income inequality has risen. Um, and one of the things that the now 
somewhat tighter labor market is doing for us. Uh, and when I say somewhat, um, the unemployment rate is low, but there's still 2 million jobs missing, um, is, is that we see the rage, wages are moving. But what we do need, of course, is to make sure that those people who don't have jobs are able to find them to find uh, good employment. The other thing that I worry about has to do with our long-term competitiveness, not just vis-a-vis -vis other countries, but relative to our own history. Um, and we have fallen behind in terms of how much we are willing as a nation to invest in basic research. Uh, we've fallen behind in terms of how much we're willing to spend on education. Um, and the other thing uh, that we often lose sight of is the following. Very often, particularly in Western economies, the pace of economic growth and the health of the economy uh, is often related to labor force growth, population growth. And over the last decade or so, more than half of the increase in uh, workers has come from immigration, both at the lower end of the income uh, spectrum, but also at the upper end. Um, and the restrictions in recent years on visas, uh, the concerns about travel uh, during the pandemic have all contributed in a negative way uh, to what's happened uh, to our labor force. Uh, and by the way, keep this in mind, more than 60% of the working PhDs in science and engineering in the United States are immigrants. Uh, and if we make it difficult for them to come to the United States and stay here, we're not helping ourselves long-term. John Cassidy, thoughts about uh, how the US economy is doing apart from uh, the well, obvious? I think the other panelists covered the past pretty well. I mean, mm -hmm. looking forward, I think there's two big issues. One, we basically got another supply side inflation shock here, which is going to make the uh, Fed, Fed's task more difficult. They're already getting ready to raise interest rates quite substantially, I think. Now they've got to look at a big oil price shock on top of that. How are they going to deal with that? So that's one issue. Mm -hmm. Second issue, the financial markets. Uh, I'd be interested in Abby's in, uh, input here too. So far, there's been a sort of modest, what I would call a relative modest sell-off on Wall Street, but nothing. We've had such an enormous bull market over the last 12 years. That it, you know, if you talk to anybody on Wall Street, they say the financial system much safer than it's ever been. Capital ratios at banks are much higher than they used to be. It's nothing like 2006, 2007, 2008. Well, let's see. When you get huge asset price movements, especially as we've seen in the last, you know, if it gets worse, but even in the Russian side, we're already starting to see out of Europe big margin calls on various high wealth individuals. Are there any hedge funds on the wrong side of these movements? You know, we won't, we just don't know. The financial system, it's the old Warren Buffett um, saying, you don't really know who's got their trousers down until the tide goes out. So that's what we'll see here. So I would, I would highlight the inflation shock challenge to the Fed and the possibility of a financial blow up somewhere. That's dangers ahead. Here's a question that's been submitted by uh, Lauren Ross who asks, uh, and I'll put this to Jason Furman since you worked in the White House. Why can't the US president invoke emergency powers as was done with the development and acceleration of COVID-19 vaccines, uh, working with oil shale and domestic oil producers to produce uh, nearly self-sufficient oil and gas supplies, especially in the short run? I mean, the issue isn't self-sufficiency. The United States produces slightly more oil than we consume. We export uh, more oil than we import, but oil is still a global price. And so something that happens anywhere in the world will raise the price of US oil, no matter how much oil we make and no matter how little um, we have. So the first thing is um, it's not self-sufficiency. Now, do we wanna increase US production? Maybe, um, there's a set of considerations around the environment. There's also a set of considerations around price. Um, if we wanna do that, um, there's some things maybe they could do using the Defense Production Act, um, but you know, mostly what they would need to do is one, um, sort of drop some of the environmental limitations they've made on production. I actually don't think they're that big a deal. I don't think they've raised global prices that much, but if you want to help a little bit, you could do that. Um, and then you could go one step further, uh, which I wouldn't advocate and say, you know, we'll guarantee you we're going to buy your oil at blank dollars a barrel. Um, $80 a barrel. Now, chances are a guarantee like that wouldn't get exercised because the price is above it. 
but if the price falls a lot, that would be valuable. That might convince some frackers to continue to frack. And that basically is what we did um, with the vaccines. We offered to buy it at a certain price. So if we wanna give money to the oil companies, um, we can get them to produce more absent that. Um, we don't have a lot of other tools. Uh, here's a question I'm going to, uh, it was uh, sent to us by Shira Goldman, and I'll uh, put it uh, to John Cassidy, since you cover politics as well as economics. Uh, could the current situation end up fostering the political will for action on actual progress towards sustainable non-fossil fuel energy sources? It's a very good question. I actually wrote a column on this subject a couple of days ago. I think the, the basic answer is up to a point. Biden's um, environmental climate change package got shot down last year as part of the Build Back Better bill, but it's still out there. Senator Manchin is the key player here. He came out last week and said he's willing to support a, small, a smaller package, which most people think would be about 1.75 trillion. Um, and the spending on that, a certain amount of it would go to deficit reduction, he's insisting, and the rest of it would go to climate change and uh, another one other domestic issue. So. If you look at the figures, it's possible that most of the Biden climate change um, initiative could be funded through that mechanism. I think the initial figure was about 500 billion. People are talking about maybe 400 billion. You would get most of the tax incentives, most of the um, you know, subsidies for electric vehicle um, purchases, etc. There is, I think, now a realistic um, prospect of that going through. Is that going to satisfy the climate change groups, no, because the original Biden package never satisfied that too. And Manchin is going to knock down a couple of very important elements, including the suggestion for a um, <coughs> financial incentives for the electric grid operators to buy renewable fuels and not buy fossil mm. fuels. He mm. won't live with that because that hurts the coal-fired coal power station. But I think there is, short answer, there is room for progress here. Abby Joseph Cohen, thoughts on either of these questions? That have a, uh, yeah, um, one of the interesting things to me has been uh, that there has been a, a natural move towards concern about environmental issues uh, in the United States uh, by investors um, and by companies, in large part uh, because of some generational changes and also because the scientific data and the experience that so many people are having with regard to extreme weather uh, and, and, and impact uh, it has led to, to this kind of discussion. Um, and, and so what we are seeing um, still is that companies are being encouraged by their employees, their future prospective employees, the people they want to recruit uh, to uh, pay attention uh, to these matters. There is one other element with regard to energy, if I may, mm -hmm. and that is the incremental producer may not be in the United States. You know, one of the real questions has been, why is it that uh, the Saudis and uh, the Gulf producers um, have refused apparently uh, to speak to the White House about increasing their supplies uh, at this point. Um, and, and so uh, Jason makes a very important point that energy markets are global. Um, and um, you know the fact that we import into the United States has more to do with logistics and location of various things as opposed to how much we actually have. Uh, but if we need to increase the global supply to offset uh, shortfalls uh, from Russia, one of the obvious places would be the OPEC producers. I didn't mention Venezuela. And I, I would be watching carefully in, in the next several days to see if there is some sort of suasion uh, that the US applies uh, to those various countries. Our new friends, the Venezuelans. Um, uh, I, I have a question for the three of you. We'll, we'll start with, you know, Jason Furman, you mentioned you see the economy as the glass two thirds full. Uh, Paul Krugman wrote a column the other day that I found very interesting about the funk that Americans are in. It, it, and a, a tremendous number of Americans not only don't see the glass two thirds full, they, they see it uh, you know, three quarters empty. 51% uh, uh, of one polling sample of Americans feel that we're either in a recession or a depression right now. Uh, uh, Americans seem to, many Americans say they have no sense of, of uh, economic growth or uh, when, when in fact people are, are trying to hire all around them. Uh, inflation, I mean, I, I'm just curious, what is that all about? What is happening? Why are we so negative? Why are so many Americans so negative about uh, 
uh, economic news, which they're experiencing in their own lives. Uh, and I would assume that it's essential to the workings of a democratic government when it comes to economics that what the economists think is good as a result of their policies is seen as good by the people who are affected by them. So let's start with Professor Furman first. What, what's going on? Right. Part of it is, you know, COVID, polarization, things outside the economy affect people on the economy. But I think we should take seriously what people think about the economy. And I think there actually is some disconnect between what my own public policy preferences are and the way most Americans see the economy. I think the number of jobs we add is incredibly important. I'm really worried about people who are left out of the labor force, re-entering it, people who are unemployed, who are struggling to get by. I'm also really worried about wages of you know, retail workers and fast food workers. Uh, those things have done pretty well um, in the last year. If you look at the median worker, um, they had a job a year ago, they have a job now, and that job is paying less adjusted for inflation um, than it did a year ago. So I think there actually is some disconnect between sort of what I think matters most in the economy and how um, an awful lot of people are being affected. And just the short version of that is the jobs that are gained, those only really affect the people who got the jobs. Inflation affects everyone um, and affects everyone. Partly they magnify the effects in their head because they forget they got a bigger wage increase, um, but partly in, in a real and genuine way. Not a lot of workers got a 9% raise last year enough to keep up with inflation plus a bit more that they've been used to before. John Cassidy, I mean, what, you, 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 write, you write about economics. Uh, do, you, do you feel this, this uh, disconnect between people out there and uh, people who are writing about the economy? I think Jason's exactly right. And the, the difference between the sort of person who is severely affected and the average person who kept his job during the recession. Um, and what they've experienced in the last year is basically just a big increase in inflation. Inflation's always a puzzle to economists and historians because if wages keep up with it, it shouldn't really have such a big political impact. I even remember, again, showing my age a bit here, going back to the 70s and 80s. We used to have the, the, those discussions used to take place then when um, inflation was going to 10 or 15% and economists and political consultants would say, well, why are the, why are the people so furious? You know, their wages are going up with it too. Real wages didn't collapse in the mid seventies, but people for some reason just hate the sight of um, higher inflation, especially higher gas prices in the US. It's quite a strong correlation between the president's uh, approval rating and gas prices, which, um, you know, it's a bit of a mystery really, but it just seems to be there. So I think that, that is the issue. And it doesn't help when people like us and people economists say, well, inflation is not a big issue. That really gets people's backs up and they think that the government and people in authority are sort of ignoring their issues. Do we, I mean, do we think that, that um, uh, what people are being told about the economy, what they, what they see or, or hear Abicone in the news, that, that's, that that contributes to their judgment as opposed to their own personal experience of, what, of what's going on? Well, I, I think it can certainly have an impact if there's a drumbeat of uh, economic news that gets presented in a negative way. But we also have to understand that people, for all kinds of good reasons, are on edge. Uh, they're on edge because of the difficult experiences many had during the pandemic. Um, they're on edge because of the political uh, polarization uh, in the country. And I also think that there's a loss of credibility um, that has occurred um, over the last handful of years, uh, particularly among you know, uh, the so-called elites or the policymakers, where uh, many individuals basically are, are not quite sure what to believe, um, mm -hmm. who to believe. Um, and uh, we've turned uh, in many cases into a nation of cynics. Um, and and, and uh, this is actually something a little bit different for us. We, as, as Americans, have tended to be a nation of optimists, and now we're kind of grouchy. Kind of grouchy. Uh, here's, here, here's a question, uh, which I'll broaden. The question is, does cryptocurrency provide Vladimir Putin with the means to circumvent sanctions? I will broaden that to ask all three of you, do you think cryptocurrency affects anything of what we've been talking about uh, so far? And, and if so, how? Abby, we can start with you. Yeah, um, a, a cryptocurrency is certainly cryptic uh, to many people. 
Um, and uh, there is the belief that there's a, a great deal of crypto uh, trading uh, in Russia, um, something that the Russians had hoped would give them a, a way around some of the economic sanctions. Uh, you know, as was discussed earlier, um, a sanctions on the SWIFT system, a messaging system, kind of soft, mushy kind of sanction. Uh, the bigger sanction was freezing a lot of the uh, FX reserves. Um, we believe, by the way, that many of those reserves were in China, um, and the Chinese can't convert uh, those reserves uh, for the Russians in, into rubles. So, uh, you know, the hope of many Russians was that they could use crypto, and it's turning out not to be uh, quite the case uh, because there's so many other things that are, are, are getting in the way. Um, one of the concerns I have writ large about financial markets um, has to do with the role of crypto. Um, you know, at this point, uh, still the lion's share of cryptocurrency trading has no economic rationale. It's more trading for trading's sake. Um, um, if, if the data we've seen uh, are to be believed, about half of the remainder um, has to do with illicit economic activities or things we don't want our mothers to know about. Um, and, and uh, you know, something on the order of 5% of crypto trading has to do with legitimate economic activity. Now, the hope on the part of those who are strong believers in crypto is that that 5% will grow and will grow notably, um, but thus far it hasn't. And one of the things to keep in mind is we've not yet seen the impact of what happens when a sovereign nation like the United States introduces a digital dollar. Uh, that is a digital currency, which actually has the backing of, of the country, has the backing of the revenues, the tax revenues of, of that country and so on. And what happens to this presumed value of these other digital currencies? In the meantime, what's the role right now uh, for some of these crypto uh, currencies with regard to, to Russia? It doesn't seem to be helping them, uh, at least at this point. Uh, but of course, the information we're getting out of Russia right now is very limited. So the digital dollar that you've mentioned would, would, would match cryptocurrency in terms of its medium, I suppose, but, but not in the sense that it's independent of any central bank. It would reflect the, uh, the, uh, the, value, of the, the value of the dollar. It, it, it would indeed. And of course, yeah. you know, all of this should be a little bit separate in discussion from blockchain, which is a real mechanism. You know, blockchain as, as a computerized system uh, for inventory control and, and a whole host of other uh, keeping track of, of orders, keeping a track of revenue, keeping track of financial transactions, very important, but that is just the tool behind several of the cryptos. Yeah. John Cassidy, does, does uh, cryptocurrency come up anywhere in your, in your uh, consideration and writing about uh, the economy, the war in Ukraine, uh, uh, inflation. And there's obviously a potential um, sort of financial transmission mechanism if some of the big crypto players get into trouble and that sort of feeds back into the financial system somehow. We haven't really seen that so far. I mean, I think what we've seen over the last six months, even before the, uh, the war, but the war is accentuated, is that um, Cryptocurrency, the whole appeal of it is it's supposed to behave orthogonally to the rest of the financial system. You know, it's supposed to be a store of value. It turns out to be just like an internet stock. You know, when internet stocks go up, crypto goes up. When internet stocks go down, crypto goes down. It's just another risk on asset. So I, I think it's been a blow actually to cryptocurrencies, what we've seen in the last six months. Although, of course, none of the boosters will ever, will ever admit that. Uh, Jason Furman in, in the non-sequitur of the day, I believe you have a, you have a college roommate who's flogging cryptocurrency on, 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 on television these days. Uh, tell, tell me, does, it have, does cryptocurrency have any, any relation to, uh, uh, to either Putin's strategy or, or what's happening to the U.S. economy? Right. Whenever I have a chance, I flog cryptocurrency, but flog in a very different meaning uh, of the word than I think you had just um, intended. Right. I agree with everything that Abby and John said. I think uh, both of them were probably too polite. Um, the, the use cases here are, are mostly terrible. And the the you know risks and costs and downsides are non-trivial. And you know, I worry. Um, Robert, that the reason that people won't like a digital dollar from the U.S. government isn't that they're trying to get be free of the U.S. government. 
they're trying to have something that doubles in value every three months. <laughs> they're trying to have a so-called stable coin that's guaranteed to give them a 20% interest rate and is completely safe. Um, you know, they're trying, in other words, to have a set of fantastical things that no one um, can, can offer them. And, you know, hopefully the lesson was learned over the last um, couple of weeks and couple of months, but, you know, hope springs eternal um, among some. Uh, here's an important question for whoever wants to uh, uh, to address it, and that can be all three of you. But we, we've been sanctioning Iran for quite a while now, and uh, we can make some judgments about what's been accomplished. Uh, what what might what might we learn uh, from U.S. sanctions against Iran uh, that could be ap applicable uh, in sanctioning Russia? Who wants to try that one first? Jason Furman. One thing is that they're just not guaranteed to succeed in their ultimate goal. Um, you know, sanctions probably played a big role in um, apartheid ending in South Africa and changing the position of the business community and many within South Africa. There aren't a lot of unambiguous success cases where a regime that was bent on doing one thing you know, turned around and did another. Venezuela has suffered an enormous amount. Iran has suffered quite a lot. Now, I think it's probably given us some leverage and, you know, we'll get some things on the nuclear program in exchange for this. So I don't think it's nothing, but, you know, countries that are run by autocrats that have a set of goals that are go far beyond the economy have proven the ability to withstand quite a lot. Um, I'm afraid there's a decent chance that's the case with Russia, but it's not like I have a better option for us to pursue. Um, beyond arming the Ukrainians um, even more than we already are. So, you know, would, would, would pursue this one too. Just John Cassidy, do you agree with that, that appraisal? I do, yes. I mean, I would only say we haven't, I think Russia's a bit different just in that it's the uh, first big sort of advanced economy to face sanctions of this, of this nature. And the attack on the central bank is a sort of novelty for a, you know, a G20 country. Parts of Russia are quite well integrated into the rest of the Western economies, so they may be more vulnerable. Is there a vulnerability there for Putin because he, his power base are the oligarchs who have got a lot of Western exposure, etc.? I don't know. I mean, Jason's exactly right, of course. The lesson of history is that uh, sanctions can do a bit, but they can't displace a uh, sort of authoritarian regime from doing what it wants, going all the way back to uh, 1936 and the invasion of Abyssinia by Mussolini. And the League of Nations introduced huge sanctions. That's generally been the case. South Africa is a counterexample. Iraq, some people do say, going back to the question, that Iran is a counterexample, and that one of the reasons the Iranians are willing to discuss the uh, nuclear deal <coughs> was because of sanctions, and that was another reason why they may be willing to discuss it again now quickly. I mean, that would be <coughs> one thing we haven't mentioned is if we do get a new Iranian nuclear deal next month or so, that might have quite a significant impact on the oil market because they're a big oil exporter. And I would imagine there are people inside the US government who are you know, working very hard on that now. Mm -hmm. and they're getting chivied along by the political people in the White House. Abby, Joseph Cohen, uh, thoughts on, uh, on sanctions? I guess we sanctioned Cuba for about as long as we've sanctioned anyone. And uh, uh, the Cubans certainly hung in there. The, the, the Castro brothers uh, did not say, well, you know, We'll cry uncle. <laughs> yeah, one, yeah. one of the key things about the sanctions against Russia, Robert, has been how well coordinated they have been. Mm -hmm. um, I would say that the Biden administration has worked tirelessly uh, with our economic allies um, and the coordination has really been quite surprising. Now, some people might argue it took them too long to get agreement among uh, so on, but it has occurred, number one. And number two, the thing that I find even more interesting, and this is very different than uh, some of the other sanctions we've seen uh, in, in history, has been that private players have stepped in as well. Um, you know, the scenes of uh, commuters in Moscow not being able to ride the subway because Apple Pay uh, wasn't working, uh, for example. Um, uh, the withdrawal, at least temporar temporarily, of McDonald's and Starbucks. You know, one might argue these are not big 
items from an economic standpoint, but they do send a, a, a political PR uh, kind of message, which is quite distinct from what has happened in some of the other economic sanctions. Uh, and very importantly, it's not just the United States uh, with sanctions against a country. It is uh, truly um, you know, a lot, very large number of, of economies doing this. Abby Cohen, Jason Furman, John Cassidy, thanks to uh, all three of our, of our panelists for joining us today. Uh, many thanks as well to Joshua Plout, Nate Bonzani, Ronnie Gibaliano, uh, and uh, Adrienne Kiss of American Friends of Rabin Medical Center, uh, and to our technical director, Sam Lunetta. Uh, also, thanks to today's program sponsor, Crown Acquisitions. Uh, Global Connections is produced by the American Friends of Rabin Medical Center. Uh, the group's website is www.afrmc.org. That's a 501c3 a national charitable organization representing uh, in the United States, uh, Israel's largest hospital, Rabin Medical Center, which is in Petah Tikva in greater Tel Aviv. Now join us next month for Russia, a new Cold War. Uh, with guests Evo Dalder, used to be U.S. Ambassador to NATO, Robin Wright of the Wilson Center, uh, Professor Kimberly Martin of Barnard College, and Donald Jensen of the U.S. Institute of Peace. Uh, I'm Robert Siegel. This has been Global Connections, Navigating the New Normal. See you next month. Uh, stay healthy and stay safe. <laughs>